right, well, it's really good to have the teenagers in here tonight. In fact, uh, our numbers are a little low, so I'm glad that uh, glad they're here. I'm not glad that their teacher is sick. hope that uh, the Greenways get to feeling better soon. But um, we're studying the book of Esther, and uh, we're nearing the end. Uh, we start a new quarter Sunday. But I'm carrying this study on one more Wednesday night so we can completely finish these three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And uh, then after that, I'll uh, let you know what we'll be studying next. But for tonight, we're going to look at Esther chapters 5 through 7. So if you get your Bibles out and turn to those chapters, we'll be looking at that. And uh, I talked a little bit about Esther as a story. What a great story it is. And we talked about plotting and those kinds of things. But another thing that great stories have, another important quality is characters. You know, if you're watching a movie or reading a book and the characters are no good, it doesn't matter how exciting the plot is, it's just going to be dull. It's going to be really boring. Well, this story has some great characters. And we're basically doing a character study of two people tonight. Uh, one with positive qualities, that's Esther, and one with negative qualities, that's Haman, the villain of this, of this book. So we're going to start with Esther, and we're going to note her courage, and then after that we're going to look at Haman and look at his cowardice. Esther's courage, Haman's cowardice. So let's start with her courage, and we're picking up where we left off last week, and we're going to notice four qualities of Esther's courage. And you'll remember last week, we ended with uh, Mordecai challenging Esther to step in on behalf of her people. And she noted that would be very dangerous to her health because she can't approach the king without being summoned. And she hadn't seen him in 30 days. And if the king didn't extend his scepter to the person who approached him without a summon, that person, even if it were Esther, would be put to death. But she says this in chapter 4, verse 16. She says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So when we come to chapter 5, this is what we see in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So what we see here, first of all, with regard to her courage, is preparation. She's on day three of her fasting. And We've talked about how, for some reason, the book of Esther avoids religious talk. Fasting here would indicate prayer. Throughout the Old Testament, when people fasted, they were praying. So she's been preparing through prayer. Uh, she is now putting on her royal robes, which probably means she was wearing sackcloth beforehand, which is another part of her spiritual preparation. Now she's getting ready to go visit her husband. And this preparation is really important to courage. I think a lot of people think they are cowards because they get caught off guard 
and when they're caught flat-footed, they don't know what to do, and they don't step up like they should, and they kick themselves, and they wonder, why am I such a coward? Why am I so afraid? Well, you weren't prepared. And bravery requires preparation. Just think about the example of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14. Uh, Gethsemane means a place of olive presses, which is really interesting because in Jesus' day, so far as we can tell, there were no olive presses in the Garden of Gethsemane. There were olive trees, but no olive presses. But there was a pressing that was going on as the weight of the world was on Jesus' shoulders. And how did he handle that? How did he bravely step forward to the crucifixion? He prepared through prayer, right? And he didn't just pray once, but we know from the gospel accounts that he went three times at least. And he prayed to the Lord for strength. And he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He repeated this. In fact, the verbs there say he was praying, mean he continually prayed, not as I will, but as you will. He was driving that into his soul before the arrest so that he would be ready. So preparation is a, a very important part of courage. We see Esther making the preparations. She could have gone into the king's room the moment Mordecai's message came to her, but she took three days for fasting and prayer so that she could prepare. Now, the second part of her courage, second quality, is action. There has to be a point at which you take action, which is what she does in verse 2. Uh, verse 2 tells us, When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This was the, the moment she feared. If he had not extended that scepter, she would have been dead. Now, there, there are all kinds of speculation about what went on in this one little verse we have. Because, you know, we naturally want more drama. We want to see what's going on between this husband and wife. And there's even an apocryphal book called Additions to Esther. It's not inspired. It's totally speculative. It's not based on... It's, it's fiction. It's not based on any, any um, credible evidence. But it depicts this scene in detail. And in the book Additions to Esther, she approaches him and grows pale and faints. And he becomes very agitated, it says, uh, out of concern for her. So this may or may not have been what happened, but it seems to be the king's demeanor with regard to her. Because what follows is this, this statement that he makes in verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, you know, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes as he's known in history, was prone to exaggeration. Uh, you remember when Haman offered him 10,000 talents of silver? And he said, no, 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 just let the edict be made. But he was interested in the silver. So he, he wasn't truthful all the time. And I very seriously doubt if Esther had said, you know, I was going to ask you for something, but that half of a kingdom sounds pretty good. Give it to me. 
half of the largest empire in the world. I don't think he was really going to give her half the kingdom, but he was uh, deferential toward her. He was open to her request. He was listening to her despite this 30 days in which they had not even seen one another. So she decided not to bring her complaint immediately. Instead, she invited the king and Haman to a banquet. And uh, you remember when we started this book, there's a lot of feasts and banquets. In fact, I've seen outlines of Esther just based on the different feasts. And uh, that's her plan, is we're going to have a banquet. I want you and Haman to be there for that banquet. He agrees to it, of course. So she takes action. This raises an important question regarding the relationship between action and courage. Think about this. Which comes first? Does action produce courage or does courage produce action? I think we usually go with the latter. We think, I can't act unless I'm brave. But there are, there's another way of looking at it. It could be that action produces the boldness. Sometimes you might have to force yourself to step forward. It is said during the Civil War that General Sherman felt bolder and stronger and braver when he was on the front lines of battle and he was able to see the progress that was being made and he never felt more intimidated and insecure and fearful than when he was in the back with the stragglers and the deserters and the wounded and he saw the fear on them. Fear is contagious as is courage. And so it may be that taking action produces courage. Whichever it is, there is a strong relationship between the two. And if, if you're not taking action, then you're not going to have the courage. Now, I'm going to stop here to share with you this proverb that I think applies to what's going on in the book of Esther at this point. Look at this, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. I think that's very interesting because that seems to be what's happening with the Hasuerus here. The name of God is not in this book, but his finger is all over it. He is, he is acting providentially through the king, through Esther, through Mordecai, to bring about in his amazing, mysterious way the salvation of his people and the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. So we've looked at this these qualities of Esther's courage, we've gone over preparation and action. Let's get to her grit. She plans a banquet, a very intimate affair. You know, eating is a very intimate thing to do. You only do that with friends or special people or on special occasions. She's doing this with the man who wants to exterminate her entire race of people. This bloodthirsty, insecure, selfish maniac. She is inviting him to a dinner that she is going to serve. Now that takes special grit. I mean, that, that, that's an unusual quality, but I think it goes along with her courage. And I believe that nothing great can be done in this world without a little bit of that determination and grit. Here's a statement from Edmund Burke. The timid soul never attains greatness. 
He is doomed to a life of cautious waiting in the shallows of accomplishment. Now, are you satisfied with just accomplishing things in your life? Or would you rather have greatness? What does the Lord want from you? A life of accomplishments? Shallow accomplishments, as Burke puts it? Or greatness? Here's another statement by L.P. Jacks. The universe is ill-adapted to the fearful and the unbelieving, but most exquisitely adapted to the loyal, the loving, and the brave. I think a lot of people who are afraid think they are playing it safe. But Jax seems to be saying, this world is not for the weak and the timid and the fearful. It's actually a very dangerous place for those people. They can't do a whole lot in the world when they have those, those fears that are ruling their lives. It's a place that's well adapted to the loving, the loyal, and the brave. Which means Esther was someone who could be used to bring about positive change in a place like Persia, even in the king's court. So we need to look at that. I also think of this proverb. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Esther was able to be bold because of her righteousness. That was her grit. Now, you know, I think of Jesus' statement, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There's nothing that emboldens you more than having truth and righteousness on your side. And that's where Esther was. She was right. God was behind her. There was no rational argument that Haman could make. She could afford to be courageous because truth was on her side. And we may ask, well, that's Esther. She was in a unique time. Do I really need to do anything great? Do I really need to be thinking about this? Uh, because I'm just a normal, average person living in a small town without a whole lot of influence. Look, God has given us a huge task to go into the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. That, that's an enormous task that requires grit and determination. It requires boldness. And so I think we can look at Esther as an example because we're facing a huge challenge ourselves. Let's look at a fourth quality, and this is the final one before we get into Haman. And the final quality of courage is shrewdness. At this banquet, verse 8 of chapter 5 tells us that she requests their presence at another banquet, a second banquet, the next day. Now, nobody knows exactly why she did this. But we're, we suspect that it was a smart thing to do. And maybe her nerves were rattled and she just needed a little more time Maybe her relationship with the king was strained because they hadn't been together in a while and she wanted him to warm towards her and to feel a little more sympathetic toward her. Um, maybe she just didn't have all her ducks in a row yet. We, we don't know exactly. The explanation is not given to us. It might have had something to do with some royal protocol that she was following that you know, isn't explained to us. But you detect some shrewdness here. She's, whatever she did, she was doing it the right way. 
You remember what the Lord said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so we need to be innocent and pure and kind, yes, but also clever and wise and as smart as we can be in order to fulfill God's will in this world. That's Esther's courage. Preparation. Nobody's going to be bold unless they prepare for it. Action. Sometimes action comes before the courage. Grit. That's the determination. Even to be able to sit down at dinner with your worst enemy. And shrewdness. The cunning that she used that shows how clever she really was. Now, for a a stark contrast, let's turn to Haman, and let's talk about him. Uh, and we're going to talk about his cowardice. Before that, I want to share with you this uh, quote from Moby Dick. There's a character in Moby Dick named Starbuck. He's the first mate. And he makes this comment somewhere in the book where he says, I will have no man in my boat who is not afraid of a whale. Now, they're on a whaler, and uh, they're supposed to be harpooning whales and and you know, slaughtering them and bringing the oil and meat back. So you would think you don't need men who are afraid of whales. But the first mate says, I'm not going to have anybody on this boat who's not afraid of a whale. And then the explanation that follows is this. By this he seemed to me not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an utterly fearless man is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. So maybe you're not brave, maybe you're just not very smart. Maybe you're not afraid because you don't know what you're up against. And so I want you to think about this. What is the opposite of courage? I don't think you can simply say, well, it's fear. That's what you think, but it's not simple fear because there are a lot of courageous people who have healthy, productive fears. The opposite of courage, we'll have to give it a name. It's a kind of fear, an insecure, unproductive, unhelpful fear, and we're going to call it cowardice. I realize fear and cowardice are synonyms in the dictionary, but I want to distinguish this from a productive, healthy fear. I want you to think about Haman, because Haman's not acting like he's scared. He's doing some very bold things here. I mean, he went to the king and requested genocide. That takes some gall, right? So it's not, you can't just summarize him and say, well, he was, he was afraid. And Esther was courageous. No, he was a coward. And let's define this kind of cowardice. It's, it's a very subtle nuanced personality trait here in five points. First of all, blindness. He goes to this dinner, chapter 5, verse 9 says, which has been planned for his demise, and he's completely clueless. In fact, the text says that he went home joyful and glad of heart. He's so excited that Queen Esther had invited him to her banquet. He doesn't know that she's a Jew and that he is about to wipe out her people. Now, this kind of blindness shows ignorance in two things in particular. When you see this, generally speaking, there are usually two things that these, these um, cowards are blind about. And the first is their own guilt. Blindness to guilt was one of the problems that 
Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees. He called them blind guides of the blind. And you remember him saying, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. They did not see their self-righteousness and how destructive it was. They couldn't see how bad they were. They thought they were the best people in the world. They thought they were better than Jesus. They condemned the Son of God. And that's the kind of blindness you see in Haman. He's blind to his own guilt. He doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. He has no shame. The second quality they're blind to is the possibility of redemption or forgiveness. And what's really bad about that is when you see the world like that, like it's so unforgiving and there's no room for mistakes, you have to hold yourself up to an impossible standard. There's a lot of anxiety involved in that, a lot of insecurity. You know you're not perfect, but you're trying to cover it up. If anybody finds out, it will be your undoing because your identity is all wrapped up in being perfect. And you don't forgive people and, and you assume that nobody would forgive you. And this is the kind of blindness Haman had. He was blind to his own guilt. He was blind to the possibility of forgiveness. And as a result, he was deep down a very miserable, fragile man, which leads us to the second thing. That blindness will explain his fragility. Uh, let's read the rest of verse 9. It says, When Haman went out that day joyful and glad of or Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Being blind, cowards can't see reality. They project the critical views of themselves on the others around them. It, there's a little history here between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai is the reason Haman wanted the execution of all the Jews. He wouldn't, rise, he wouldn't rise up in his presence. He wouldn't bow down and worship him because he worshiped only God. And Haman just couldn't get over that. This is one person in an entire city, and he can't let it go. He's fragile. He's too sensitive. Do you, you ever get like that? You know, let's, let's get real. We all get like that, right? Where we get our feelings hurt just a little too much, a little too easily. And that doesn't help you face the world with boldness. And we see that in Haman. He just can't let it go. If you don't know how to handle criticism, it will destroy you. The Proverbs are full of admonitions that a wise man will listen to rebuke, but a fool will never listen to it. Proverbs 17.10, I think, says something like, correct a wise man and he will listen to you, but you can... I'm losing it. It's something like, drive, rebuke... Let's turn to it. <laughs> now that I've gone down this path, I've got to look it up. Proverbs 17.10, I hope that's the right verse. It's going to be really embarrassing if I got the reference wrong. Okay, here it is. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Now, Haman is the fool. You know, a hundred blows, the rebukes that could help him, that could change him, correct him, he's going to look at it as slights. 
He's going to get defensive. He's going to want to fight back, even against people who are trying to help him. According to Larry Creeder, there are three choices when you're facing criticism. Number one, you can disregard the entire criticism and just ignore it. Now, some people are really good at that, and I admire their ability. Um, they just, it's like water off a duck's back. It doesn't bother them a bit. They don't hear it. They don't listen to it. They just keep on going. The other extreme is to nurse that criticism and rehash it over and over in your head and come up with all kinds of things that you can say in response and to be super defensive about it. The healthiest way, the third thing to do, is to take the 1% or 5% of good out of that criticism, learn from it, and toss the rest of the useless part of it away. We've got to learn in wisdom to, to handle criticism. Criticism can be your medicine or it can be your poison. And the difference is in how you use it. And Haman used it improperly. Thirdly, we see in his cowardice, superficiality. Uh, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. What he does when his pride is wounded by Mordecai, he goes to his house and he calls together his favorite yes men. He calls together his wife and his friends who will tell him what he wants to hear. Now let's listen to this. This is really pitiful. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. So he recounts the splendor of his riches. Not what he could do with his wealth or what he has done with it, just the glory of having a lot of money. Superficial. The number of his sons, Herodotus, the, uh, the Greek historian that wrote a lot about Xerxes and, and Persia during these days, he said to the Persian man next to valor in war, greatness was determined by how many sons you had. And so it wasn't his relationship with his sons or what they had accomplished or anything like that. It was just how many he had. He might not have even known all their names. Uh, in chapter 9, we learned that he had 10 sons. So we know that. He also, what, what else was it? All the um, honors that the king had given him and how he had been advanced. Not what he could do for Persia or the, the honor it had been to serve the people, but just, just the honors of, of having a rank. And then finally, these invitations to the banquets that were actually designed for his own demise. He's bragging about that. So superficial about so many things. And of course, everybody's sitting around the table there at his home telling him exactly what he wants to hear and how great he is. And this is, this is his problem. He has no roots deep down in his life. Everything is just for show. Next, look at his selfishness. Chapter 5, verse 13. After recounting all these examples, he reveals he's still unhappy. He says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All he cared about was 
his own satisfaction. Now look at this so far. You probably wouldn't have put this personality together this way. Uh, blind, fragile, superficial, selfishness, and that equals cowardice. But in Haman, you see this real-life example, and you see a complicated but very realistic picture. I mean, one thing leads to another. When you're blind to your guilt and you're blind to the possibility of forgiveness, you become a very fragile person because deep down inside, you know that you're a fraud. And when you're so fragile, you keep your life very superficial. You don't, you don't dare go deep. You can't take it. You can't grow because you won't accept any criticism. So you keep your life, all your achievements, all your greatness, it's all just on the surface, no roots. And that causes you to be very protective and selfish. You, you, the whole world revolves around you. And that selfishness will lead to the fifth and final quality of his cowardice, malice, just complete hatred. It wasn't enough for Haman for Mordecai to be killed in the extermination like all the other Jews. He wanted him to hang on the gallows. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. A very important word is used here in the text. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now remember what we said when we first brought up the gallows, that it's not the hangman's gallows that you usually depict, like you see in the westerns or something. This was just a spike, a long spike stuck in the ground, a big pole with a sharp tip and they would impale people on it. And this was due to their religious ideas. They, um, Persians were Zoroastrians. They believed that the earth, the soil was sacred. And so they didn't want dead bodies to come into contact with the earth. And uh, they had all kinds of strange forms of execution. This is how they came up with the, the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. Another way to keep a body from having contact with the ground is to let an animal consume it. And so here, this impaling on a gallows was a method of execution for those that they wanted to disgrace. Now the Romans picked that up and created crucifixion from it. This is the beginning of the evolution of crucifixion, which was the cause of the death of our Lord. And what's really interesting is a word is used here for gallows. And it's the word zulon. Zulon means wood or tree. Now, this is in the, I'm talking about the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. The Septuagint used the word zulon, which means tree, but it's not the ordinary word for tree. That word is dendros. Zulon is an unusual word for tree that pops up in a number of texts regarding Jesus' death. Um, one is Galatians 3.13. Another is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, Peter in Acts 5.30 uses this. And you recall these texts because it's unusual to our ears to hear them say, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, or Jesus died on the tree, or he bore our sins for us on the tree. Why is he calling it the tree? Why not cross 
or why not say he was crucified? It's because there is a connotation that goes along with this word zulon that's used and translated tree in the New Testament. And it goes all the way back to Esther and what was meant by being hanged on a gallows. Why did Haman want to kill Mordecai on the gallows? He wanted to discredit him. He wanted to curse him. He wanted to dishonor him. And the teaching of the New Testament in this very subtle way is that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life in the most dishonorable way on the tree of curses. Because we actually were the cursed ones. And he stepped in and substituted his life for ours. So when you read these texts and you come across the crucifixion discussed as a tree, think about Haman's gallows and what he intended for Mordecai. And you might get a sense of what is being said in those texts. Well, he goes to the banquet. Let's wrap this up. But before that, the king has a sleepless night. This shouldn't be a surprise to us that Hasuerus had made a lot of mistakes, right? I mean, we can just think of a number of reasons he was up late at night. Uh, he divorced his first wife for no good reason at all because of his selfishness. He lost a war to the Greeks. He was responsible for a lot of bloodshed. Oh, he made an edict to kill all the Jews. Uh, that's pretty bad. Um, he also ate a lot of food, so maybe he's having indigestion. Whatever it was, in chapter 6, he can't sleep. Now, what do you do when you can't sleep? This is what I tell my kids. Get the most boring book you can find and read it, and you'll go to sleep. So Ahasuerus, he gets the records of Persia out. And he's having them read to him. And he's reminded that Mordecai saved his life. Which again is another twist of providence. Because the next day, Haman comes in to talk about hanging Mordecai on the gallows. That day, before he didn't want to wait till the twelfth month. He comes in and the king asks him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman says, Oh, he thinks he's talking about him. Get him a robe, put him on a horse, and have everybody bow down and worship him. And the king goes, great, go find Mordecai and have that done for him. What a twist, right? So Haman goes to this banquet. I'm going to have to speed this up. And Esther finds her moment in the second banquet. And here's what she says in this big revelation, chapter 7, verse 4. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And the king very obtusely says, who is responsible for this? How could he not know? But she says in chapter 7, verse 6, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And the king has to go out and get a breath of fresh air. This is just too much for him. So he steps out, and while he steps out, Haman falls on his knees and pleads with Esther to save his life. And he's in that position when Ahasuerus returns. He sees this man too close 
to his wife for comfort and orders his execution on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. Now tell me God didn't have a hand in all of that. Tell me that he wasn't working toward the preservation of his people. Not just the preservation of his people, but the honor of his people. Remember, this is all about restoration. And we've seen Zerubbabel restore the worship of the Jews. We've seen Ezra restore the law of the Jews. We've seen uh, Nehemiah restore the city of the Jews. And now we're seeing Esther and Mordecai restore the honor of God's people who are to bring the Messiah into the world. And they're almost finished, but not quite. Haman's out of the way, but his edict still stands. Remember, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. And so the story is not over until we find out how they survived this edict, which is what we plan to do, Lord willing, next week when we come together on Wednesday night. Thanks so much for your attention tonight.